Take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 together this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we have some available for you in the row in front of you. They're kind of scattered throughout. And you could uh, uh, grab one of those if you don't have a Bible and turn to page number 938. If you don't own your own Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible as a gift from us. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. So, this morning, uh, doctrine matters, third and fourth order doctrines, uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, uh, first of all, I'm not always the guy up front doing almost everything, thankfully. Uh, we've just got a few folks that are missing uh, this week, end of summer kind of stuff, and so um, uh, I don't like to be the only one up here, uh, but God is uh, gracious to give us other folks like our brother uh, Gabe to lead in hymns, but uh, also so you know if you're new with us that uh, we typically walk through books of the Bible um, systematically. It's called expositional preaching, so we are uh, studying the Gospel of John together, but we took this short break together in this mini-series in order to address an issue that we as elders have been wanting to address since our elder retreat uh, from 2020, if you can believe that, uh, February of 2020. Uh, but uh, some of you are like, 2020, there was a year 2020? I don't even remember that. Uh, but uh, times being what they were, we have held off on doing this until now. We have in this mini-series, uh, two, two sermons ago, addressed the issue of first-rank doctrines, those things which, as Gavin Ortland states, are essential to the gospel itself. We then looked at second-rank doctrines last week, or second-order doctrines last week, those, which are, those things which are urgent <clears throat> excuse me, for the health and practice of the church, such that they frequently cause Christians to separate at the level of local church denomination and or ministry. It's not separating to not do ministry together, but just, hey, we're, you know, as we talked last week, we're not Presbyterians. We are uh, a Bible church, small b, Baptist, if you will, and that's how we practice uh, some of the ecclesiology. Uh, the practice of our church is, is found in some of those second-order doctrines. Today, we will combine the last two into one sermon, those being third-ranked doctrines, um, those which are important to Christian theology, but not enough to justify separation or division among Christians, and even so amongst those in the same church and then fourth-ranked doctrines, which are important to our gospel, which are unimportant, I'm sorry, to our gospel witness and ministry collaboration. Those are things that sometimes, especially we talked about a couple of weeks ago, fundamentalism has elevated to the level of first or second rank, and you end up with basically personality cults because no one can see eye to eye on these fourth issue kind of doctrines. And so uh, we are going to, this morning, look at third and fourth together and uh, talk about some important things. If you are a member of our church, some important things uh, regarding uh, this whole series. So I, I know we've had you stand a bit this morning. I'm going to have you stand one more time as I read aloud Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You follow along as I read aloud under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. That is the New Testament reading this morning. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, it is our joy this morning to open your word and to study it together. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, as we believe that these words were inspired by your Holy Spirit in the original autographs, that now we can ask, as those who are in Christ, we can ask for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and an application of these truths. What a wonderful privilege it is to get to ask that. And we do believe in your Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit is indwelling us, and that that is what he can do. And we also, Lord, would ask that your Holy Spirit would convict those who do not know you this morning, that you would draw them to yourself through the preaching of your word, your gospel, and through your Holy Spirit, that they might, through the gift of faith and repentance, turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. Lord, may we be crystal clear this morning in what we are studying, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us attend our time. Lord, I pray that you would humble me. And get me out of the way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was in my sophomore year of college at uh, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago that I learned two things. Not the only two things I learned, I hope. But I learned from some guys on my floor about Reformed theology. And that there were people who were solid believers in Christ who held to a different eschatology, that is end times view, than I did. It was the first time I had had learned that there were uh, any different end times views at all that weren't attached to liberalism. I thought anybody who didn't believe the same as what I was taught growing up were probably not Christians. I was stunned and had to work through how it was that there were people who wanted to follow Christ who did not believe what I believed. And what I believe the Bible clearly taught about a certain matter and learn that it is okay to disagree on these matters and understand that these folks still trusted Christ the same way I did. And that's just the thing. It doesn't matter ultimately, in a sense, what I believe about Christ. It matters what the Scriptures reveal about believing in Christ. The standard is not based upon my belief, but what is revealed in the text and what the church has defended as orthodox as it has fought against foundational heresies. And we've talked about some of that in our series. If you've not been here for that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. Uh, So when it comes to the issue of something like end times, things that continue to be debated to this day, if one does not move away from orthodoxy, first order doctrines, and the the question is, can I have fellowship with those who disagree on such third-order matters, and that's what I and the elders believe that doctrine is, even if that fellowship is within the same local assembly. What is key is to, again, think about the turn of the 20th century and liberalism. I've brought this up several times in our series here. In a panel discussion on the issue of the importance of eschatology or end times, Uh, at a recent pastor's conference, one of the panel members was recalling how eschatology became one of the places where the battle for the Bible or biblical authority was fought in those days. 
and that a stake was put in the ground in those days around certain end times positions to the point where it took a major place in church's doctrinal statements. And it was a stake that was placed there because of the battle around biblical authority, not, uh, uh, not really about eschatology proper. It was a part of the battle over the Bible that remained, and yet we have today faithful ministers and faithful believers who hold to different positions of end times who also hold voraciously to the authority of the Bible. So what do we do with an issue, uh, and certainly we should say issues plural, that do hold first or second rank within the schema of our confession? We should hold tightly to those first-order issues because they are related to the gospel, as we've said. Those second-rank issues, we can have some disagreement over them as a, uh, even those within the same church, but we hold to those as things that we, we um, organize our church around. Take the issue I brought up last week of cessationism. That, that we as a church do not hold that the, the, the sign gifts of the early church that were foundational to the early church are still in existence today. Can there be someone who is a member of our church, though we say we gather around that and hold firmly to that, can there be someone who is a member of our church who doesn't hold to that? Yes, there, there can be. But what we ask is that people not make an issue out of that in order to divide the church. Amen. So we hold to these things as second order, but they are still not at the level of first order. So then there is also the issue of third and fourth rank doctrines. Those things which are important in the third to believe and to have convictions about and to believe something certain about. But does that mean that we can't fellowship as a church if we disagree on those matters? And then, of course, there's fourth rank, which are unimportant to gospel witness and ministry collaboration. These tend to be, these fourth ones especially, tend to be matters of personal conviction or preference that may demand we conform to something in which we have freedom. But for the sake of the weaker brother, we do conform. Let me give you a for instance. In Jamaica, at least the last time I was there, which has been quite a few years ago for ministry, I've been there since, but in 1998 I was there for ministry, we were asked to wear pants continually as men, and women were asked to wear skirts continually throughout our time there. Now, the churches, the church that I went with, it wasn't my home church, I was going as a leader for them to lead some music for them, but they certainly did not hold to that as a standard for their church. But what they recognized in uh, Jamaica was that if you're around Christians, uh, they expect that of those that call themselves Christians. And so we didn't want to offend our our brethren, and, and though we would say they probably need to come along in that understanding a bit, um, we conform to that. But that is not an issue that we should separate over. So, uh, with these kinds of things in mind, I know I've just given you a ton to think about. It's like, as I've mentioned, drinking from a fire hose. Um, maybe a bit less if you go back and listen to those previous messages, if you, haven't, if you weren't here for those. Uh, here's the main point for us this morning, and I think I forgot to change the wording in the folder. Uh, If you look on the back of your worship folder, if you're tuning in through the live stream, you should have had this emailed to you. I think it might say something like propositional phrase or something like that. It's actually the main point. Third and fourth order doctrines are not hills to die on when it comes to the local church, but may be personal convictions and preferences on which you stand personally. 
Third and fourth order doctrines, of which we're speaking this morning, are not hills to die on when it comes to the local church, but may be personal convictions and preferences on which you stand personally. And I want to mention that is not unimportant. I'm not saying that it's not important. It is, it is important. But it does matter how we treat them as a church and with each other. So if you want to write down what I just said, I will repeat it because I think it's important. These personal convictions and personal preferences are not unimportant to to you personally, but it does matter how we treat them as a church and with one another. I think you'll understand that as we continue through this morning. I want us to see this morning two aspects of negotiating third and fourth order doctrines. Two aspects of negotiating third and fourth order doctrines. Number one, the unity of doctrine that must be maintained in Paul's statement here in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, not 2 Timothy, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He wrote 2 Timothy 2, but we're in Titus this morning. The unity of doctrine that must be maintained in Paul's statement. First, we see the gospel. Now, again, this is going to be review for some of what we've already said. But, but what, I want you to, what I want you to see this morning and what Paul is doing here is how he speaks in, with conviction about certain things, but, but leaves out details about other things and, and, and how we work through these things together. The gospel. Notice what he says there. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul works through a typical Pauline parenthesis, but continues his thought about the gospel in verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession. And, and, and so, you know, Paul is tying these things together. We're kind of, we're kind of picking it apart this morning to, to, to draw out these implications. Number one is about uh, uh, the gospel underneath this unity of doctrine that must be maintained. Now, he does go on to say that the gospel and God's grace transforms us. But let's focus on the gospel here. This is a non-negotiable. Okay? The gospel, in essence of itself, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is, is you know, Christ came and he died for sinners and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. All that according to the Scriptures, that is the core of the gospel. We're not talking about the effects of the gospel, how it changes us. We're just talking about the core of the gospel. Christ came to redeem sinners. We're not saying the gospel doesn't transform, that grace doesn't transform. But this, we want to start off with saying the gospel, as we've been saying, is a non-negotiable. You cannot be reconciled to God except through Jesus Christ, except through the gospel. As we discussed in our first sermon in this miniseries, first order or first rank doctrines are those that are gospel matters. Or as Ortland again puts it, first rank doctrines are essential to the gospel itself in the midst of speaking on the way christians should live and and that is the intent that paul has here is to speak about the way christians ought to live paul raises up here the gospel as the foundation of that living christ died and redeemed for himself a particular people from all of the world what is the gospel it is that it is that we proclaim christ came he was sinless he died in the place of sinners he rose again, and He is coming again. And we proclaim that to every creature 
Um, and, and if someone falters on a point of that, and we can't get into all the doctrinal matters that are held up underneath that, but things like Trinitarianism, uh, things like Jesus is God, um, these uh, cardinal doctrines, as sometimes they're called, these foundational doctrines that are first order relate to the gospel, we cannot compromise on that. If you compromise on that, I'm not saying that sometimes we don't falter in our gospel proclamation, but if you don't believe that, essentially you are not a Christian. But what does this do? When God saves us, He does transform us and train us. Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice again, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from what? From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is uh, another non-negotiable here? Another non-negotiable is that uh, godly living, godly living and, and good works are a fruit of the gospel. So if the first point is the gospel proper uh, underneath this first heading, the second is the gospel living, the way in which we live out the gospel. Another non-negotiable, a fundamental understanding, a basic truth is that when God saves us, He transforms us. His grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Implying, by the way, that this age is not godly. And it wasn't in Paul's time either. He redeems us, he says, from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people, the elect, as those who are for his own possession. By the way... What that implies is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You are not your own. You have been bought with what? A price. The price being the Lord Jesus Christ's blood. He purchased for himself the church by his blood, is what it says in Acts 20 and verse 28. Zealous, he says, those who are bought, you know, purchased are not their own possession, are zealous for good works. At a basic level, this ought to be true of every believer. The grace of God is saving us. It transforms us. This is a non-negotiable in that there is transformation which leads to godly living and good works. What we'll see in a moment is that though at a basic level this is a non-negotiable, and while there are certainly broad terms that define this kind of transformation, not all of my conviction or personal preferences that disagree with yours are sins. So I want to make sure that we understand that. We're going to get into that in just a minute. As Paul works through the foundational elements here of what it is true concerning the gospel and salvation, he is pointing to the reality that those who are in Christ have been saved for good works, not by good works, in order to be beacons of light in this present age. We are to stick out as not of this present age. So the gospel saves us The grace of God in the gospel transforms us and he calls us to live godly lives. We talk about this often with three G's. You guys who have been around for a little while are familiar with this. The law brings what? Guilt. 
God brings grace, as we see here, that transforms us. And we live godly lives and do good works out of gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We are not in our transformation, in living godly lives, saying, Lord, would you now accept me based on my good works? No, you cannot do that. In fact, you don't even live your righteousness out of anything that you have done. It's all out of what Christ has done. This is why, in brief, we would call ourselves imputationists. We believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And it is by grace and through His righteousness that we are able to live in this way. So it is not by good works, but we do live out those good works. A third doctrine that is non-negotiable that we see in this text is Christ's return. So if we talk about the gospel, and then the gospel transforming us, um, and uh, 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 godly living is a result of that, and good works are a result of that, and we call that gospel living, we call this gospel expectation. Christ's return is gospel expectation. Another part of this passage is living in light of Christ's return. Look at it again with me. And, and you can see I'm kind of shifting things around in the text here to help us draw out these implications. So I'm going to read it again. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is the non-negotiable here? Christ is returning. And the return is a physical return, and that return includes a resurrection of believers and non-believers. But it certainly includes, as we think about believers here, the resurrection unto life. Uh, that is the glory that is yet to be revealed. You think about something like 1 John 3 and verse 2. Uh, Brothers, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but what we do know is when we see Him, what? We will be like Him. That's the glory that is to appear. Uh, the glory of Christ as the incarnated God-man, eternally God, takes on humanity Uh, lives a perfect life that we could not live, dies the death that we deserve, is raised again uh, three days later, ascends to the right hand of the Father where He is glorified as a true human being, yet also truly God. And that glory in His humanity is what awaits those who are in Christ. Think about Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 says that the creation itself groans and longs for the redemption of men. Well, well, we have been redeemed, haven't we? But there's also a redemption that is coming. There is the finality of our salvation. Uh, Think about it in terms that we've talked about before. We have been saved, justified at a particular place in time. We have been declared uh, right standing before uh, God, not guilty because of what Christ has done. We are being transformed. We're talking about this in in, in the, the idea that we live godly lives, that we do good works. That is by the Spirit in Christ, by His righteousness, nothing that we have done. He is transforming us into the image of Christ. And when is that accomplished? 
It is accomplished at the second coming. It is accomplished when we are glorified fully. So when you see that here, think about that. The blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I can't help but uh, also instruct you here to understand that uh, in this passage, Paul is saying that Jesus is God. He's affirming that. God and Savior. He's not saying the appearing of God in the sense of God the Father is going to appear somehow separately from the Lord Jesus Christ. No, the God-man... Uh, the, the one who is eternally the Son of God, who is God, uh, of the same essence as God, just as the Spirit is, the, the, the God-man will appear, and in glory we will see Him, and when we see Him, we will be like Him. If someone does not hold that Christ is returning physically, sometime in the future, they do not hold to Christian orthodoxy. Let me read to you from some different creeds and confessions, what the church has been uh, preaching and teaching and learning for 2,000 years. The Apostles' Creed. Now, let me, I'm going to explain some of these to you. The Apostles' Creed, it was not written by the Apostles, but it was written in um, uh, the flavor of the Apostles by those who came after the Apostles. So, so they're essentially saying, this is what the Apostles uh, preached and taught. I almost said prot and taught, but preached and taught. Listen to this. The Apostles' Creed. From the Father's right hand, He will come, that is Jesus, will come to judge the living and the dead. The Nicene Creed. Remember remember the Council of Nicaea. Uh, They were gathered together over several years to dispute uh, Arius, who said that Jesus is not God. He's, He's great, but He is the greatest created being, and He's not God. No, says the Nicene Creed. No, He is God. He is of the same essence as God. The Nicene Creed says this, He, that is Jesus, the Son, the eternal Son, will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. Then there's the Didache. How many of you ever heard of the Didache before? The Didache is the first discipleship manual of the church. It's one of the earliest documents that we uh, have uh, that that seems to show us what the early church taught in regard to discipleship. And uh, simply, what the Didache simply does is quote scripture. The Lord will come and all his saints with him. Then the world will see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven. That's what it says. Uh, The great uh, confession of our Presbyterian Reformed brothers and sisters, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, this is only a piece of it. Uh, There's much more that they say, but... This is what it says, God God hath appointed a day wherein he, that is Christ, will judge, or see, uh, God hath appointed a day wherein he, God, the Father, will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, which basically copied the Westminster Confession of Faith in all areas except for a couple, including baptism, says this, God has appointed a day wherein He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given to the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Didn't you just read that from the Westminster Confession? Well, that's what the London Baptist says too. The Baptists and the Presbyterians got along, right? <laughs> In regard to the return of Christ. 
these truths being laid out as the non-negotiable truths. Gospel, gospel living, and gospel expectation are the foundation upon which Paul says what he says here to Titus. This is what is supposed to be the foundation. This is the gospel. This is the fruit of the gospel. And this is the expectation of the gospel. God saves us. He transforms us to be living godly lives, to do good works. And we have an expectation that he is coming again. Dear ones, that is a precious truth that we ought to be thinking about, that we ought to be meditating upon. The Lord is coming again. I uh, saw one of my friends, Dustin Benji, uh, put on uh, social media yesterday, the world is not falling apart. The world is falling into place according to God's sovereign plan. This is part of that plan. So it is now crucial for us to see, based on these foundational truths, how we cannot be divided in some of the particulars in the outworking of these in everyday life. So the second point this morning is this, the reality of the differences that should be allowed in view of unity. First and foremost, the gospel is non-negotiable. We cannot falter on that. We also said we cannot falter on godly living. So let's answer this question then this morning. What is godly living? Godly living is is living that reflects the transformation of the gospel in your life. It is the walking and newness of life Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. He says, after he gives this great exposition on the grace of God in salvation, he says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound, may it never be. And then he goes on to say, do you not know that you died with Christ, having been raised with him? And he speaks about both, I think, spiritual and physical baptism, and says to walk in what? Newness of life. It is not, however, those things about which you have personal convictions upon which God places no restrictions. In other words, godly living does not encompass your personal convictions or preferences that God does not speak clearly to. How do I know this? Well, God's Word even talks about this. You can write this down or turn to it if you'd like. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used? according to human precepts and teachings. Let me just pause for a moment before I read on here. Remember what Jesus said? It is not the thing that you put in your mouth that corrupts you. What corrupts you? It is your heart that corrupts you. So listen, thinking about these things, Paul's saying, you have died to these things. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. One's personal conviction or preference over a matter that God does not speak clearly to in saying, no, you cannot do this, does not dictate 
the rest of the way, I'm sorry, the way that the rest of the church deals with that issue. That is past. We don't live under the Mosaic law any longer. The, the Lord dropped a sheet before Peter and said, rise and eat. And Peter is such a good Jew that he argues with God who gave him the Mosaic law. <laughs> no, Lord, I can't do that. Wait a minute, Peter, who told you you couldn't do that? God did. Now he's telling you you can. Rise, eat that pork sandwich, my friend. It's, it's good, smoked for a low uh, amount, a uh, uh, temperature and, and a long time, I promise you. That anything that differs in regard to those things to which God does not say yea or nay is a personal conviction and you cannot demand that someone live in a way that God has called them to live perhaps differently. What about good works? Paul mentions good works. What are good works? Simply this, doing the things God has called us to do, namely things that exhibit love of God and love of neighbor. Therefore, I will draw again an implication about the illustration that I just gave. If someone struggles, as Paul says, with meat that is sacrificed to idol, we know that an idol is a nothing. But if my brother is struggling with that, I don't uh, say eat up when he struggles with that. Now, I know in my heart that there is freedom to eat that meat because an idol is a nothing. But my brother is convicted about that. I'm not going to throw that in his face. That would be sinful of me to do that. But when I'm not with that brother, I'm going to enjoy that pork sandwich. So I'm going to love my neighbor in this way. I'm going to exhibit love of God because I do recognize that the law in the sense of the moral law or the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, still apply today. And God says, love God in the first four and love neighbor in in the final six. So I am to do those things that God calls me to do. And that's a non-negotiable. If I sin in one of those, James says I've sinned in how many? All of them, right? But do my good works look exactly like your good works in loving God and loving neighbor? They cannot. You are uniquely given spiritual ministries that comport with your place in the body of Christ, specifically within this local assembly. So, if you're serving God and serving neighbor in a certain way, you cannot turn to your fellow Christian within this local assembly and say, hey, you're not serving God because you're not doing this. No. If it's something that God directly says we all ought to be doing, um, God says we are to be making disciples, that implies evangelism. We need to be doing that, but, but perhaps your spiritual ministry is one of mercy versus someone else's spiritual ministry of, of something else that God has given them. doesn't look the same, right? So we are living out our godliness, the way that God is transforming us, according to the Scriptures, yes. But the way that sometimes looks in particular could be different from conviction to conviction and preference to preference. It, it might be depend, dependent upon the way that you were raised in the church, that you just think, man, my conscience tells me I can't do that. Then don't do it. Don't sin against your conscience. If you learn a different way, though, hey, God doesn't restrict me in that. I can participate in that. And that's a freedom that I have in Christ. And it's not sinning against your conscience at that point because your conscience has been trained by 
godliness, by God's word, by others who are coming alongside of you, then participate in that. We are also not to use our freedom as a, 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 as a way to be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters. So therefore, we are loving our neighbors, especially those within the flock, by not doing things, certain things that might make them stumble. There, there's a whole other lesson here, you understand. We do not falter, though, on what the gospel is. We do not falter on the fact that God does give us a way to, li- to live, and we ought to live that way. And we also do not falter on the blessed hope. We do not falter on the main idea that Christ is returning. What is our view of the blessed hope? Well, you may have strong convictions about your view of end times. And I would say you should. You should study this out and you can and should hold strong convictions on issues concerning Christ's return. However, please recognize there are faithful brothers and sisters who hold to different views than than you do. Now, again, just as we talked about baptism last week, the only thing we're talking about this week is end times because Titus happens to, to bring that up here. There are many issues that we could debate as third and fourth order issues. This is just the one that we're camping out on. It's the lens through which we're looking uh, uh, today because it comes up in Titus 2 here. There are other issues that we could, that we could bring about, but um, the, 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 the thing that we cannot um, negotiate is whether or not Christ is returning. He is coming back. Amen. That's right. But faithful brothers and sisters have different views that they've studied out. Their convictions on it are just as strong as yours, and it's a debatable matter. Listen to what D. Edmund Hebert states about this verse, about the blessed hope. He says this, The consummation of all of our blessings are vitally related to the return of the Lord. End quote. This is, as I have said, gospel expectation. We know the Lord is returning, and our eyes are set on that day. We are to be uh, focused upon that. That is the trajectory. In fact, I would argue... Uh, from uh, Genesis to Revelation, the trajectory is eschatological. It is for the glory of God <clears throat> for mankind to see. Now listen, we can have fruitful conversations around many third and fourth order doctrines, around the issues of end times, etc. But the elders of Fellowship Bible Church, and Steve's not here to defend this, but he does believe this too, so ask him when he gets back. In fact, I'm going to direct everything to him because he's not here this morning. So every, every question you have about this, you need to direct to Steve. He'll really love that when he gets back from vacation. But the elders believe it is not an area to divide over even within our own fellowship. This is something that I, I, I pointed out a few weeks ago, and I want to emphasize again this morning. Persecution is coming. And we don't want to be divided over things which do not matter for gospel unity. And more so as a local church, seeing the importance of what we do in regards to being organized around. So the elders have counseled together and determined that there is a need for us us to adjust some things uh, within our church in light of this. We believe, and we have studied this out together and spent many hours together, in regard to this, this is the part where you, as a, if you're a member of our local assembly, if, you, if you've been asleep thus far, wake up, okay? I hope you haven't, but we believe it's important to tie ourselves to the historic confessions of the faith that come 
out of the Reformation because this was a recapturing of the gospel that was shrouded in the medieval church. You heard some of that when I talked about our distinctives last week. At the same time, we believe it is important for us to organize our church around the distinctives that I mentioned last week. These are not hills to die on in the sense of separating from other local churches in regard to ministry, but they are important enough, these second-tier doctrines, they are important for, enough for us to say we as a church are organized around these issues, such as we mentioned last week, baptism. We also believe in light of both of these that some issues like that of eschatology should not hold that kind of sway, certainly within first-order doctrines, but also concerning the organization of our church. Is Jesus returning physically? If you answer yes, that is good enough, and there is plenty of time for us to have discussions around that topic. But when the pressure is upon us for uh, or from persecution, um, the, the baseline is going to be this for us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We all believe that. We all believe that. We will not, on the other hand, though, allow the church to be divided over issues of these sort, third and fourth order doctrines. Listen, good arguments around third rank doctrines can be super fruitful, but there must not be any dissent on this point in the church that would cause the church to divide. In other words, just as with anything that falls under the category of third or fourth rank doctrine, if you say you must believe this in order to be a Christian, you have faltered and are causing division in the church, and that will be met with proper um, church discipline. So, here's the, the big deal this morning, if you will. We as elders have chosen and adopted a, faith, a statement of faith that we believe is simple, covers these matters and brings unity amongst the elders and we hope the congregation of FBC. It's a doctrine called the abstract of principles. And if you've been paying attention to my pastoral prayers, I've been praying it since February of 2020 when we adopted this. It is derived, it is a summation from the 1689 London Baptist Confession which is essentially the Baptist version of the WCF, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and was crafted by the English Baptists who rose out of the Reformation and whose legacy fits more with our current status than with our roots coming out of the necessary, please hear me, the necessity of the fundamentalist movement. That was necessary. But remember last week I told you some of that had flavorings of Presbyterianism. The Bible church movement was more Presbyterian in nature, really, Rather than tying itself to its past, it forged ahead against the liberalism of that, of that day. And it was necessary. Please do not misunderstand me. The abstract, therefore, if you're curious about this, and I pray that you are, the abstract maintains the spirit of what FBC has believed throughout the years, emphasizing orthodoxy in the areas around which we organize our church. It ties us historically, however, to the earlier church, it, is, it's simplifi- it simplifies what we believe and what we teach into one. Now, if you remember, you recall, previously we had a what we believe and a what we teach document. We are seeking to merge those together for simplicity and yet allows for flexibility in areas which we view as third and fourth rank doctrines. So it simplifies that and it brings some flexibility to areas like eschatology. Included... 
and what we're going to distribute to you is a page of distinctives, as well as statements which clarify common current issues that we find ourselves as a church having to address often in our culture. We will likely find ourselves adding to that those matters of statements from time to time in order to address matters from a biblical perspective. These should be obvious from what we hold to doctrinally. Like, in other words, you should be able to read the statement of faith and say, clearly they would hold to these statements, like abortion is dreadful and sinful. You should be able to tell that from from our doctrinal statement, but there sometimes needs to be clarification uh, to draw that out. So, here's what we'd like for you to do. Um, Pastor Mike distributed on the four-year table and the table out here a copy of the document that includes the abstract of principles as well as the distinctive statements in the, in the four-year. We'd like for you to review this over the next few weeks, and we will hold a special members meeting to affirm this as our one statement of faith in light of everything we've been talking about over the last three weeks. Now, I want to emphasize again, let me footnote this. This is not just Jason doing this, okay? This is the elders, including uh, before his resignation, Brett, and he's still making a decision about whether or not he's going to continue in the role of lay elder. But but we uh, labored over this, recognizing a, a need to make an adjustment here. So this is not uh, so, some sort of, you know, from divine fiat, the, the teaching pastor who has two votes. I don't have two votes, okay? I think I usually have a half a vote, actually. But I'm kidding. Um, we are equal. So, however, what is of utmost importance this morning is that we recognize that we stand together as a church concerning the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. If you have believed that you are, one, if you have, if you have believed, you are one who is transformed and continuing to be conformed to the image of Christ, and that is something that is of utmost importance. And so therefore, if you are here this morning and you've heard the gospel and you are perhaps struggling in some area of your life as a believer, we want you to come and let us know that so we can come alongside of you and encourage you in what it means to be gospel living. And then for those of you who have not trusted Christ, my call to you is to repent, to turn from your sin and trust in the gospel. Trust in Christ's perfect life death and resurrection alone to be reconciled to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning again, this has just been a a lot of information to take at once. And so I pray that you would, by your spirit, take away anything that I have said that would be um, distracting and would only let us meditate upon who you are. Lord, you have called us out of darkness into light if we are in Christ. From death unto life, you have adopted us into your family. You have made us your own. You are conforming us to the image of your Son. You have imputed his righteousness to us. We are declared right standing and not guilty before you because of what Christ has done. We are able to live that out. Uh, We are able to live that gospel fruit out because of Christ, not because of anything within us. Lord, help us to submit to your Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be looking for the coming of Christ as that blessed hope. 
the glory revealed, not knowing what we will be, only knowing that when we see him, we will be like him. The visio Dei, the vision of God, the beatific vision, the blessed vision of Christ. Lord, we long for that. And yet, Lord, I know that there are some in our midst who do not know you. There has to be in a room this size with this many people. I pray that they would, even now, Lord, by your spirit, as they're being drawn by your grace and mercy, by your providence, I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.